Welcome back to another episode of the 212 Podcast, where we bring you a different guest each week to talk through the trials and tribulations of working in the arts biz. Our next guest on the podcast is a legend of music being recognised as someone who loves to merge any opposing force in music together. Whether it's a bassoon on a rap track or a bakawash on a drum and bass record, he is yet to find an amalgamation he cannot pull together. He has been noticed in the highest of orders, having been made a CBE, a recipient of the Ivan Novello Lifetime Achievement Award, among several honorary doctorates. He is a composer, musician and songwriter. Please welcome to the podcast, Nitin Sawney. How are you and where are you today, Nitin? I'm I'm great, thank you. I'm in in London today. Um, I'm uh, I, I actually normally am at the studio in Brixton, but um, today I'm just in the in my flat, um, just kind of having just used the gym and gone for a run. So I'm just uh, getting ready for the day, really. Awesome, love it. Is that how you normally start your day? You normally go to the gym and then get into get stuck into music. Yeah, I'm getting back into it. I mean, I I kind of uh, I'd put on a bit of weight recently. Um, I was kind of, to be honest with you, I was sitting around uh, writing a lot of music, and I I just kind of neglected. Um, yeah, I used to do a lot of uh, a lot of sport. I, I I used to do triathlons and and a lot of kickboxing and stuff like that. So I'd been a bit out of it for quite a while. So I'm just getting back into things now. Great. Um, and I, I get we we always start the interview by talking about, and I do want to get onto the hobbies outside of music because music seems to be all consuming for you but we will start the episode by just kind of going through where people grew up and whether the area uh, you lived in or the the environment that you grew up in influenced your love for music somehow yeah definitely i mean i i, I had a uh... You know, it was it was a really picturesque place that I grew up. I mean, it, we had a, a beautiful castle in Rochester in Kent, and uh, and a really lovely cathedral. I was right by the river. You know, I was opposite a park, so it was a very beautiful place to grow up. I, and you know, lots of country pubs as well. When I was getting a bit older, but um, you know, there was a, a lot of racism in my area, so it was a it was a tough place to grow up because uh, I encountered a, a hell of a lot of it when I was young. But having said that. I also had great times playing with bands. I also had a, a lot of great experiences learning to play music. Um, you know, I was, I was playing classical piano from the age of five and got into flamenco guitar and, and then jazz, uh, jazz piano and all kinds of different things. I was in lots of different types of bands, played with orchestras. So, I, yeah, I grew up with a love of music and I used to really just enjoy the area I grew up in in terms of it being a beautiful place to be. So, do, so did you? Were you the only child of your kind of ethnicity that you could kind of see growing up in the in the area that you lived in? Well, I had my two older brothers, but um, um, but you know they were quite a bit older than me. I mean, one was eight years older, one's five years older. But I, I, yeah, so I, I was around them a bit, but basically they they came from. But you know, it was it was interesting because when I when I became a teenager, that's when the racism in my area became really pretty bad. And um, the National Front, which was a which was a pretty full-on racist political party, they became very influential in my area. So it was it was a tough time. I mean, I, I saw quite a lot of violence, so I, I, re- I received quite a lot of violence and I received quite a lot of abuse uh, growing up. But in a way, I kind of think what what, kill, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I kind of feel like um, a lot of the things that happened to me fed into the music I was making and probably fed into a lot of attitudes I have about feeling, you know, strongly against any kind of racism that's out there now. And I, I feel uh, always as, as a musician that it's kind of an obligation to speak out about things like that. 
Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting because I, I in a oh, I mean a, a really different way, but I guess there's there's kind of cross reference to it. You know, my stepdad actually his last name should have actually been a Polish name. And even uh, him, uh, you're kind of the, a similar age to, to my stepdad. And even him, he couldn't have the Polish name just for the reference that came with it. You know, it just felt like anyone in that environment at that age, in that era, that wasn't a Smith or wasn't uh, white, just seemed to be targeted in some way. Yeah, I mean, you know, that this is the thing. There's there's a there's pretty I mean, I, I know some of the history of Australia as well, you know, and 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 also of um, you know, of many different countries in, in relation to race. Um but I, I do think that the UK was at the time in the seventies pretty pretty dreadful. I, I I think it's it's important to kind of having said all of that to to look at you know the progress that has been made, but I do I do despair with the current government because they feel like it feels like they've taken things back quite a lot, um, which is frustrating. I mean, I I produced um, uh, I was an executive producer on a film recently, a documentary called called Hostile, which was about this government's um, hostile environment policy, uh, particularly to refugees and asylum seekers, and um, and the way in which they've targeted them to make this an actual literally a hostile environment for them to be in and that that was that particular phrase was coined uh, by Theresa May I think in uh, in 2012 um so I kind of I I think it's uh, it's been it's been a frustrating time uh, for a lot of people you know in in relation to watching how racism has resurfaced and um you know I I I th- but having said that you know I think I do feel hopeful and optimistic about things moving forward. And that's, and that's, I guess that's a, that's progress in some way, even if it's a one instead of a hundred, it's one step further, I guess, but obviously we need to see more um, happening as well. But I, I wondered, you know, we were talking about the music and the influences of you growing up. Did any of your immediate family play any music growing up? Yeah, I mean, my brother, uh, one of my brothers played, was a guitarist. And uh, in fact, it was, um, and, and then my, my, my mum and dad, I mean, so my mum and dad would play a lot of Indian classical music in the house. And also my dad was a huge fan of flamenco guitar and Cuban music and um, a lot of music from all around the world. My brothers played a lot of jazz, you know, and a lot of uh, heavy rock in the house as well. So I, I, was, I grew up listening to a lot of um, Led Zeppelin as well and, and Pink Floyd, who, um, weirdly enough, I, I've been playing with recently for, for their latest track, which is actually to raise money for Ukrainian uh, refugees. So, you know, it's a weird thing because some of the things I listened to when I was young, I mean, Jimmy Page has been to some of my gigs uh, from Led Zeppelin and I've got to meet a lot of my heroes. I mean, even listening to the Beatles, I was lucky enough to write with Paul McCartney. So a lot of the people that I kind of grew up listening to, I've met and even worked with, which is an incredibly weird thing, but, but wonderful as well. How does it how does it feel for you kind of growing up and listening to this music and then you get to play with them? How does how's that? I mean, that must be a kind of nod to how how great you are as well. I mean, I'm sure you're going to be really modest and and tell me otherwise, but I mean, it must be a, kind of a nod to you as well. No, I just think it's it's um, definitive proof that we live in a simulation. 
<laughs> I mean, I can't believe I can't believe the fact that you know. I mean, even Anishka Shankar, who I'm, I'm godfather to her two children, and um, and Ravi Shankar was one of my heroes growing up, and so the idea that I'm godfather to his two grandchildren, um, and I was I was by his bedside when he passed away. Um, you know, th- these people were my heroes. They were they were all the people that I, I listened to. So you know, John McLaughlin, I shared a stage with him uh, the other day. I mean, uh, about a month ago, uh, with also with Donnie Harrison and uh, and Nishka Shankar. You know, it's it's incredible because all of this. You know, when I was when I was very young, I used to listen to a pirate radio station called Radio Caroline. They were based in the in the North Sea, and um, and I used to I used to listen to them the music, and they they'd have frequently people sending in their personal top thirties on a Sunday evening, and I'd always listen to those and think they were so interesting because people would just play very eclectic music. And I remember a lot of those, um, a lot of those tracks. I I just was in awe of the musicianship or of the of the compositions and so on. But I I think it gave me a really eclectic, uh, wide taste in music because it was unpredictable what people were going to send in. So I always found it really fascinating. And and um, years later um, on Radio Two on BBC Radio Two, I had my own series um, called Nissan Sawney Spins the Globe. And so I tried to replicate some of that feeling of those personal top 30s. But, you know, it was it was just great having, you know, a childhood where I had an opportunity to listen to a lot of diverse music. And I do envy a lot of the kids these days who who can access any music from anywhere at any time they like, um, you know, through YouTube and the Internet and whatever streaming services. And you kind of think, wow, plus the fact that they can, you know, if you want to learn to play a specific type of, uh, Bulleria from Flamenco. You can just go onto YouTube and find the best teachers, or you can you can you know find tutorials in just about anything you want, and that is an incredible thing, you know, which I I, I think is a revolution in in terms of learning. And I think it actually seems like it's less. Uh, I, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be as much segregation in terms of you know you. you uh, anyone can listen to absolutely anything and it, it it's kind of like okay because you have this broad range of things that you can listen to it's not it's not like you listening to you know an afrobeats record is going to is is going to somehow signal you as as different from from anyone else any everyone can listen to absolutely anything that they want yeah i, I agree with you but i mean the the the, the trouble is um, quite often the limitations that we have, all the barriers we come across, are quite often the barriers in our own minds or the glass ceilings that are placed upon us by the socio-political environment that we're in. So it's kind of, it, we have all those opportunities, but you know we also have to have the confidence and the encouragement to, to be able to take advantage of them. And I think a lot of that is about how, how we challenge endemic racism and endemic kind of I guess limited thinking in terms of looking at the the world as as a playground for for musical exploration, and I think that's something that really needs to be encouraged much more in education and the way we think. I could not agree more, and I think that's that's one thing that uh, you know we'll we'll get into some of these questions as well later. But I think that really it's just that open mindness. I think the UK. You know, being from the UK as well, I, I I find it very kind of narrow-minded sometimes in the in in the thought process. And yeah. I wondered actually, just with you know talking about you know growing up, that 
the teen years for you where you're uh, where you're learning more about yourself and what you like for you that would have been kind of 70s early 80s did you listen to any mainstream mainstream music in in the UK then or were you interested in just a whole variety of things well i listened to mainstream music and i listened to uh, a lot of you know very interesting kind of rock bands and stuff like that. you know i was i was listening to all kinds of different types of rock music um probably not so much um pop music i found it a bit boring um but but i kind of at the same time i did admire some of the programming and some of the um some of the kind of production on on pop tracks of the 80s i mean there was some you know with the new romantic movement with um uh you know with a lot of that kind of 80s sound it was it had its own definitive uh kind of identity but then um you know for me it was i was always listening for musicianship so it was jazz and rock that i was listening to principally but then i got more into kind of different types of music and and soul and r&b as time progressed and obviously um listening to uh marvin gay and people like that a lot um was a huge influence on me as well as um you know people like Joni Mitchell and um, and good songwriters but I mean people who could really craft a song that had depth and meaning as well I mean both um, Marvin Gaye and Joni Mitchell were people who could really um, express ideas through their lyrics as well as music and that was the case with also bands like The Doors you know from you know, with Jim Morrison and so on but but I think essentially I kind of I I avoided I tended to to elude anything I, I wasn't that interested in anything that was um too popular because i i kind of quite often found it a bit too cheesy for my taste and that makes total sense i mean one of the one of the genres uh, or the genres that kind of stood out i mean there was a lot of austerity during that time uh, and the music was made out of kind of anger at the time in the uk specifically punk being one of them yeah, uh, how was that punk scene uh, growing up for you during that time? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. Um, I actually played in a in a band called Prisoners for a little bit, which was um, which was actually uh, then later on um, uh, signed. I think um, I think it got a record deal with Stiff Records, but um, they they were fantastic. And the James Taylor Quartet came out of that band. But there was um, there were a lot of um, interesting bands i mean i love the clash i was a big fan of the clash because also because of rock against racism at the time i mean there were some bands like steel pulse and tom robinson and the clash and so on and i did also love blondie who came out of the punk movement but also merged into the 80s kind of electronica scene and um, and kind of you know that kind of 80s production but i was i was a big fan of blondie because I, I really liked the production on their work and i thought that's actually really good pop song writing so yeah, I mean, I I kind of I think the pop, the punk scene was amazing. There were bands like Crass and the Buzzcocks that I'd listened to as well. You know, again, challenging lyrics. I really admired the fact that John, uh, well, Johnny Rotten at the time, John Lydon actually used to uh, make really good, uh, you know, strong comments against racism. And also, you know, I I really liked some of the lyrics for the Sex Pistols. So, yeah, I mean, I, there were a lot of bands that I was listening to at the time that came out of the punk scene, but it wasn't the thing that that kind of moved me as much as some of the other stuff I was listening to. And what were you shopping for at the kind of the HMVs or the Virgin Records? Do you remember your first your first record that you that you uh, you purchased? 
Well, the first record I purchased was when I was eight years old, which was A Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, because I was, um, cause I'd heard it on, um, uh, my dad had played it on his, um, it was either on the radio or on a, on a cassette player or something, and I was just blown away by it in the car um, when, I, when I was on, I think I was on the way back from my uncle's house in London, and it was, uh, it was raining and it was a nighttime kind of scene. You know, I re- remember quite vividly where the traffic lights were kind of reflected on the road surface, and I thought it was, looked amazing, and listening to that music from Miles Davis just felt like the most congruent, congruent and appropriate music I'd ever heard. You know, it felt, it felt very cinematic as well. So I, I remember thinking... And I, I loved even at that age listening to great cinema composers, you know. I'd, so I, I kind of was, you know, immediately smitten with uh, Miles Davis's playing and his and and those tracks, and uh, and I bought that record. But later on, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I was I was much more into bands like Led Zeppelin. So I was buying, I bought a lot of Led Zeppelin albums. I bought a lot of rock albums, you know, uh, AC/DC, Hole That Rosie, uh, sorry. Um, uh, if you want blood, you got it, uh, which which had a whole lot of Rosie on it. But there were also a lot of, um, you know, like I said, kind of uh, uh, blue from Joni Mitchell, you know, lot, uh, Marvin Gaye's albums, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, a lot of different things, Beatles albums, you know, so George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, you know, a lot of different types of albums, really, as well as music from around the world. I mean, my dad had a lot of that. So I'd listen to you know, great Cuban artists and, um, and, and great flamenco guitarists as well. Did that uh, new knowledge that you were kind of like absorbing, I mean, you've got so many I- instruments and interests that you've got today. And I wondered, wondered you know, what was, the, what was the first instrument that you learned? And then was any of these records that you were, that you were purchasing and, and, and looking for, did that then trigger something in you to say oh my god what is that what, what is that noise i want to kind of learn this instrument as well oh definitely i mean you know this was the thing i mean there, there were uh, i i started off playing as a classical pianist I, I started from the age of about five and and went through all the grades and you know loved it um but at the same time i was i, I liked improvising i mean even with bark two-part inventions i used to play around with them and try different things and then you know, I, I I was very excited to learn how to play the blues, and I'd watch um, Oscar Peterson would have these uh, late night programs, which I I used to love watching as a teenager. So um, I was kind of you know very into musicianship of all kinds, and so um, but but I think yeah, I mean I was amazed when I heard uh, Pink Floyd, when I heard um, David Gilmour playing guitar and shine on your crazy diamond i thought wow that's an amazing guitar solo because it wasn't just about the technical aspect of it because I, I by then i was listening to you know people like Django reinhardt and a lot of um, very very technically clever guitarists but when i heard um, when i heard uh, david gilmore play I, I thought that sounds like somebody who's very in touch with their spirit and it was the same when I listened to Pandichianka, you know, or, or Paca de Lucia. You know, these were people who who had what they call in, in Spain duende. You know, it was kind of like that real spirit in their music. And it was just a beautiful thing. It just felt very powerful. So that's why I started to look for more is people, musicians who who had a real spirit in their in their musicianship. 
Um, I mean, you've you've said in an interview, rec- uh, or in multiple interviews, actually, that your you know your father listened to, and you mentioned it earlier today as well, that y- your father listened to the crooners as well as Latin and traditional music. Did you, while you were kind of looking at these different types of music as well, did you see or think that there were any similarities that they all have together? Well, I think my dad had a very good ear for for and mum as well. I mean, they they were both. Um, very creative people. I mean, I was amazed um, to to see that one time my mum had made this uh, kind of small wicker kind of basket type thing with a uh, which was kind of like a tray. My mum just made it, and my dad painted this beautiful painting on it, which was stunning. It looked like a Da Vinci or something. It was an incredible painting, and I just thought, wow, that's unbelievable but it had that Indian style to the painting as well and I didn't know that he could do things like that he was one of these people who was a great poet he could he could uh, you know and his dad was a poet as well and my mum was the same she came from a line of poets but she also um, you know they were into maths and science and all kinds of things they were very they, they really had a lot of interest and I think I found that really inspiring but at the same time you know they they loved the arts and um, and I think my my dad had a great ear for tone for voices so he'd, he'd listen to Frank Sinatra he'd listen to Lou Rawls he'd listen to um, Johnny Cash he liked a really good solid deep voice and my mum listened to you know a, a lot of great singers as well she liked a lot of the 50s singers female artists like uh, Connie Francis and um uh and uh Doris Day and um you know a lot of singers who who had a really clear crispy tone and jazz singers as well so i and and my dad played a lot of Nat King Cole as well so i just i just you know grew up listening to a lot of great voices and i think that's helped me a lot as a producer because i produced a lot of great singers and um, and it helps me listen for for the tone that I I grew up listening to. Yeah, I mean, you knew that music was for you um, from from a very young age, and I, I wondered as you were transitioning into that, what what was your expectation when you started in music? Uh, was it that you could make money, or was it just kind of blindly that you know if I can make money as as, as I'm doing it, then this is a kind of win win for me. Well, you know what? I, I was one of these people, although I was kind of, um, I mean, I studied law and I bizarrely qualified as an accountant, but the thing was that I wasn't really, I mean, you know, I kind of did these things and I ended up, funny enough, as a financial controller of a hotel, which is one of the weirdest things ever. Uh, <laughs> I was about 23 or 24. Um, and then I, um, James Taylor from James Taylor Quartet um, said, do you want to do you want to come on a tour? And I said, well, I'd have to leave my job which I then decided I would do. And I never looked back. I just kind of, you know, I was about, yeah, about 24, 25 years old then. And, um, and I, I literally just went off and went on tour with him. And, and then I started, um, you know, working with all kinds of people that I admired. I met Talvin Singh. I met Courtney Pine. I met some great musicians, UK players, and, um, and then formed a band, uh, bands with them. I was part of the part of the jazz scene, um, the acid jazz scene, working with people like Giles Peterson and um, and Patrick Forge um, back in the 80s in at Dingwalls. Um, so we used to do a lot of, you know, we used to do these kind of Sunday lunchtime gigs playing, um, playing Latin jazz and stuff like that. And then 
I I kind of um, was playing more and more Indian classical music and working with Talbin, working with um, with uh, dancers who 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 came from the Indian classical tradition. So I I just got into a whole range of different types of music and then gradually uh, gravitated towards doing film scoring, where I I started with the BBC um, writing music for one of their films. And um, at the same time, I started making albums. I mean, I made my first album, Spirit Dance, back in 93. And then from then on, I just carried on making albums. And, and I've been doing that ever since, really, and, and, and writing film scores and television music and doing all kinds of things, really. Did, did it feel attainable for you at the time, do you think? I never thought about um, about money or success or anything. I just really enjoyed making music, and I kind of think, you know, it was it was kind of. I thought to myself, I mean, you know, when I was working in a full time job, what I would do as a hobby was music, and and so I'd I'd put money into into buying equipment and so on, and I thought, well, you know what, I you know, if I can if I can make music money out of music, great, but. You know, I just want to spend all my time doing the thing that I love. So I I just, you know, went for it, started making music, working as a musician, not really thinking about whether I'd make money or not. But luckily it worked out and I had, um, you know, I had a lot of commissions over the years and, and end up, ended up kind of, you know, doing it full time, which was great. Um, you mentioned their film scores. I, 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 I mean, this is a personal thing. I don't know if everyone feels like it, but I feel like there's, a real separation between people that love film scores and people that love classical music in some uh, some respects. Do you find that? Not necessarily. I mean, for example, um, I mean, you know, there are lots of crossovers. I mean, in in history, I mean, you know, you have um, uh, great classical composers like Shostakovich, who who was also a film composer. You have um, you have a great deal of um, classical musicians now, um, and even orchestras that will work across film and also uh, have a lot of classical commissions. Um, so you know, it, there is a there is a you know Bernard Herrmann, for example, his ambition who 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 wrote all the Hitchcock um, music, his ambition was to be a a symphony conductor. He that's the thing that he admired most of all. Or at the same time, you had people like Ennio Morricone, who for me it was the greatest film composer who ever lived and he he actually um you know had classical training as a trumpet player so i kind of think there are lots of crossovers with with you know film scoring and writing for orchestras and classical training and classical interests i mean it helped me definitely having a background when i was young playing chopin mozart bach all of those things you know i grew up playing a lot of that music and so that helps me to score for film a great deal so i i think that uh, you know there is a lot of crossover and sometimes classical music ends up you know, in film scores anyway. I mean, I remember, for example, in The Aviator, they used Toccata and Fugue by Bach, you know, in a, in a particular dogfight scene, um, or not dogfight scene, a particular scene in the air. Um, so there are lots of, there are lots of those kinds of crossovers over time. Do you look up to some of the other film score, I guess the people that are more mainstream, the Hans Zimmers and the John Williams of this, uh, of this world? I mean, I, I look at all film composers with interest. I mean, it's something I've done a long time, and uh, and and I, you know, for example, with uh, with Hans Zimmer, I particularly love uh, this operatic piece he he wrote for Hannibal, uh, which is called um, 
called Vide Court Miam, I think it is. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's a beautiful piece of music, which I, I think is stunning as an operatic piece. Um, you know, there's also uh, John Williams. I mean, John Williams started off as a pianist um, for Henry Mancini um, for... Um, for films like Breakfast at Tiffany's, he was a he was a jazz pianist first, and then he he grew up. He got into more and more scoring for films. But yeah, I I, I think those kinds of composers are fantastic, and um, they're very versatile. I mean, obviously, John Williams' work is incredible. When I was young, you know, listening to Star Wars um, as a, I think I was thirteen years old at that time, you know, I I was blown away by both the film and the and the music, and I remember getting uh, the record, buying the record shortly after that, just to listen to, because I was a huge fan already when I was a teenager of, of film scores. Um, going back to the kind of UK music scene, we've, we've spoken about this, this this earlier as well, it can be quite rigid, you know, UK, US-based musicians are the, the kind of main the main focus, I guess, specifically with kind of mainstream music, and I think that's kind of could be said to be for a long period of time, really. We interviewed um, Deli Sosimi recently, who started with with Fela Kuti. And Fela's music is renowned for these kind of long songs, as you'll as you'll know. Why do you think songs that last, you know, ten minutes plus aren't the ones that make it mainstream in in, in the UK specifically? Well, there's there's all kinds of radio. Um, you know, that this is the thing. When when I was younger, like I said, listening to pirate radio stations, I'd quite often listen to um, you know uh, long play records and and you know listen to longer tracks. I mean, you know, um, it was quite interesting. You know, with rock music, you'd have these kind of like ten minute drum solos or whatever. You know, and um, but Felicuti, I mean, obviously tracks like um, uh, Water Get No Enemy or Expensive. S-H-I-T, you know, those, um, those tracks were, were amazing, you know, and I, I loved, uh, I love those tracks because they sound epic, you know, um, but I, I don't know, I don't know why that is the case, but apart from radio seems to have, you know, it's, it's like a lot of things these days, there's a short attention span with music as there is with, with watching great film or, or even reading books, you know, it's, um, people seem to have shorter attention spans over time but you know there is the three minute three and a half minute kind of uh thing of you know writing a single uh writing music for a single which which is the general thing people don't get tend to go over three and a half minutes for writing radio singles but i i love um you know i mean indian classical music for example will go on for a very long time will go on for hours possibly with one rag with one piece of music so i mean it's it's uh, and with Indian classical music, you know, it's about the feeling, you know. So if you are, if you're in a in a vibe, in a in a feeling, you just keep going with it. Um, classical music, you know, obviously there are movements within classical symphonies. So you know, classical symphonies are divided up, but at the same time, they're never they're very rarely as short as three and a half minutes. So it depends on the genre. It depends on the type of the type of way in which you listen to music as well. Are we going to get to 30 second songs in five years' time? Because <laughs> the attendance well, there are loads so of, low. There's loads of 30 second songs out there. I mean, you know, they tend to be for adverts or for um or for uh titles for films or whatever. You know, there are there are quite a lot of those. I mean, you know, sometimes if you're writing for a commission or if you're writing for a, a specific advert or something, they'll tell you, you know, we we want this or a trailer for for a film. 
they'll say, oh, we want this uh, to be, can, can we get this in a 30-second format, a one-minute format, and a one-and-a-half-minute format? So it depends, you know. Um, but there are there are genuinely songs out there that last 30 seconds that sound great. <laughs> and probably make a lot of money because they get repeated so often as well. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, that's true. Um, you've mentioned in a few uh, interviews as well that the terminology, you know, world music is kind of, it's it's an old it's it's an old kind of theory now and it's actually quite offensive now which i totally agree with um i wonder how we've changed uh, in terms of mindset specifically i guess i'm thinking more in the uk and just when i grew up and and seeing that in the the hmvs and the virgin records piece uh, i wonder if we have changed and if that's now not necessarily seen as a the right way forward i guess well, I don't think, I, I think what is good is that people, the way in which people will access music is quite different. Um, I don't think we are so tied to genre as we used to be. I mean, people will explore things in different ways. I mean, having said that, quite often the algorithms in, in artificial intelligence or streaming will actually kind of stick you in one way of, of listening to music and, and make assumptions about what you are listening to and then keep hitting you with the same type of thing, which is frustrating. But at the same, you know, it's up to us to break those habits and to listen to music from, from all kinds of places. But I mean, I think, I think there's a lot more opportunity to listen to any type of music you want now. I mean, um, you know, it was harder to get to get to listen to some of your favourite artists when you were younger. Now you can just literally get to a streaming service and, and listen to whole albums with no problem and get to get to hear a whole back catalogue of any artist you like. And I think that's what I mean, that the, the, the um, limitations of how we listen to music are often in our own minds or in the way in which we've we've had a kind of musical propaganda that kind of makes us feel like we have an obligation to listen to one type of thing rather than uh, explore the whole world. And, you know, exploring the world is is something that you've kind of done tenfold over. And, uh, um, you know, there's there's a lot of places that have the music that you're trying to create. And and one of them, as we've, as you mentioned there with uh, Australia and the Aboriginal lands that, that you've kind of have worked on some, some, some work there as well. How important is it to, to, to be in, because not everyone does it. How, how important is it to be in the location and it be a feeling for you to be there and to play something in that, in that area? Well, I mean, I love doing that where it's where the opportunity arises. And, um, you know, I, I've, I love it when you can do that, for example, with a film. I mean, working with someone like Andy Serkis, who's an incredible director as well as brilliant actor. I mean, everyone knows his work now. He's, um, he's most recently Alfred in the latest Batman movie, but he, he, he famously, you know, did, did all the Lord of the Rings movies as Gollum and so on. Uh, an incredible director who actually really likes the idea of making sure that you that everyone is on the same page uh, from the beginning so you know i remember going to durban with him um, to kind of really experience firsthand the filming when he was making uh, mowgli which was a fantastic production um you know and and i think 
I really like directors who do that, who invite the um, the artist to, you know, the composer to to come and spend some time on the set or or to go and hang out with them. But I mean, obviously, when I was making the album Prophecy, I was very fortunate to spend some time in Arnhem Land and to to hang out uh, for a while with the Yulnu clan and to, to spend time with them, which was amazing and really, really informative in so many ways because you can't really experience you know the music that they make unless you're with them you know and and it's it's very different to how you will experience it from a record or anywhere else or on you know if you hear something from one from one part of the world you'll hear the finished product of something but you won't really be involved in in watching or listening to the process of how that music is arrived at and so when you go to various locations, you have an opportunity to look at the processes and the and the environment that has shaped the music that you love, and that's that's an incredible privilege. And what is some? I know it's really difficult, but um, what are some of your favourite venues that or or areas that you have have worked in, and or, or that have the most profound effect on you? And is there any still on the list that you'd love to love to go to? Well, I've, I've I've been very privileged in that I've played at my two favourite venues in the world. Um, you know, one is the Royal Albert Hall and one is Sydney Opera House, um, you know, opposite ends of the world. And I, I love the fact that I've kind of, it's almost like they bookend the world for me. And, you know, I've, I've been very lucky to play some beautiful and, and incredible places like the Hollywood Bowl and, you know, and, you know, also to just have travelled around and, and played some beautiful places like there's a gorgeous amphitheatre on, on top of a, uh, on top of uh, that mountain in Sicily, which <laughs> the name of which I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but um, but yeah, it's been it's been incredible. I've I've kind of travelled all around playing some really beautiful venues. So I, I think it's it does inspire you when you play a beautiful venue or when you play a venue that's kind of got a you know that's got a really incredible history to it as well. I love that, um, but also. You know, great locations. You know, sometimes it can be the most humble of of venues or the most humble of um, places that you're in, but that you can feel a spirit in that location. So there, there are. I I've been very lucky in, in that I've travelled a great deal um, and seen some beautiful places. And God, Italy has some great venues and amphitheatres, uh, just oh, picturesque. Yeah, amazing. It's, it's crazy. You actually mentioned Johnny Cash earlier, and this is one of the things that I was going to uh, ask you about as well, is that is there any music that kind of doesn't move you or you don't get? Because Johnny Cash, uh, Hurt, for me, is one of those videos I remember watching um, when it first came out and I, I kind of feeling instantly sad. And, and you know, w- what do you think is it, it is about seeing a music video and also listening to that song too? You've got the visual aspect and also the, uh, the listening aspect. Well, I mean, I'm always listening for authenticity and I'm listening for somebody who really is, is trying to express their own truth, you know, through their musical expression. So, you know, Johnny Cash is definitely one of those people. Um, and uh, he, he, you, you can hear it in his voice and in his lyrics and his songwriting. Um, but also, you know, it, it's interesting because I think all the people that I admire are those people who have an honesty to their music. Um, and in their music, you can hear who they really are. You can hear their identity coming through. So I wouldn't really say there's a type of music that I have an issue with or there's a, or there's a type of music that's my favourite music. I would say it's more about 
admiring artists or individuals who really capture the feeling that they want to in their musical expression and really um, are unafraid to to bear their identity to the world in in the way in which they they express their ideas are you listening to slipknot in your downtime as well knitting I've, I've listened to Slipknot a few times. Yeah, I have indeed. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting actually because because uh, around that time I was listening to those kinds of um, those kinds of bands. Um, uh, you know, those kind of. I mean, it was it was interesting. What was it? Limp Biscuit, I think, at that time as well. Yeah. It was kind of like uh, back in the. Um, uh, I think it was back in the. Was it late nineties, early two thousands? I was listening to those bands, but I mean, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of different types of music. Um, you know, a lot of rock as well. Still, although you won't really hear me playing rock guitar now, I used to uh, be in a Van Halen covers band and used to play all of that kind of stuff as well. So I used to play a lot of rock guitar when I was young. But I don't. I you know nowadays uh, I, I very rarely play much electric guitar, and if I do, it tends to be quite. Uh, quite straightforward chords and you know and a bit of lead here and there but it's not um it, you know it's more about the compositions that i'm interested in i remember i remember actually going to uh bloodstock which is in derby and it was city of uh sorry uh, lamb of god slayer <laughs> and a few others and they were the most polite people that you could ever uh, be <laughs> come across as well which is the kind of exactly the opposite of what you would expect but um you know p's and q's and everything everything was on uh on point there the the knowledge and vast spectrum of genres that you you actually enjoy is it is it is kind of quite huge but i mean do you go through phases like any of us where you listen to just one genre or is is it whatever you want at the time it's it's what's it's what catches my mood in, at, at that time of day i mean it's it's interesting with indian classical music that a rag is actually about the, the you know is about the mood. I mean, literally, rag means color, and it's actually it's about the, the 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 mood of that time of day or that season. And so, you know, I kind of feel that in the way I listen to music. I listen to music in the same way that rags rags are played. Um, so I I will kind of think, okay, you know, today I'm waking up. I want to get a bit more energy into my system, so I'll listen to you know, a, a rock track or fast rock track, or I might listen to a fast classical piece. I might listen to, you know, something from Shostakovich that's really, you know, like some of his music um, for cello and piano is is really exhilarating. Or I might listen to, you know, something if I'm in a peaceful, calm space or, or, or meditative space, I might listen to something that is a very, very beautiful, slow piece of music. So it it, it depends what it is and it depends what, what kind of mood I'm I'm in at the time. And I imagine it's hard to kind of keep up with, I mean, it's hard enough for anyone if they have a specific genre that they love, but I imagine it's hard to keep up with every type of music. It's almost like you need to stop music now so we can just listen to what's been already and catch up. Because I imagine it's even harder for you. Um, I mean, it is, but I don't really try to. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I kind of, I mean, I, I don't have my radio show anymore. So, you know, at the time I was probably listening to a lot more music. But I mean, these days it's kind of music. I'll listen to music for recreational purposes rather than, you know, to, to research as much as I used to. But, you know, having said that, um, I do, you know, I do like listening to, say, Marianne Hobbs um, on uh, Six Music or there's there's a lot, you know, Keris Matthews, who's fantastic. You know, there are a lot of... Um, 
people who I really admire the fact that they do play a lot of eclectic music and they have a lot of knowledge about that music. And those are the people, you know, Tom Robinson, who who kind of, I think they're great DJs because of the fact that they are unafraid to play any type of music. You mentioned in a few interviews that kind of music is like therapy, which I think a lot of us that really love music actually, you know, probably would really sing true to them. Um, and and in, in an environment now where we, you know, I would hope that we're more open to being vulnerable with therapy and it not being a taboo subject. Do you think music influences your mood and could we actually use it for therapy as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, music is used for therapy. You know, there are music therapists who actually will literally, um, you know, play play certain types of music to to enhance your mood. I mean, in fact, in the, there's a beautiful place called Varna in India that I sometimes go to, which is um, which is a stunning place. It's a it's a yoga retreat and it's a, it's a spa as well. It's all kinds of things, but it's um it's at the foothills foothills of the Himalayas and it's in a place called Dehradun. And um, they have, uh, you know, they, they'll have these um, Bansuri players, which is um, a wooden a wooden bamboo flute, uh, which, um, which will be played uh, in the Indian classical tradition. And they will literally just be uh, just dotted around this place as you're walking around, just playing beautiful rocks. And I find it fantastic to be there because you're always kind of surrounded by stunning live music, but it's being played in a really meditative contemplative way um and it also is coming from the very very beautiful vast tradition of um of indian classical music of, of hindustani music particularly so it's um yeah it's um, it's amazing to to go to places like that and and you do feel i mean they literally use it as therapy so you'll walk into a room and you'll have uh you'll have a bansuri player there who will literally just play rags as you're just sitting there, um, you know, with your eyes closed. Um, so that, you know, I love that kind of thing. I think it's amazing when you can, when you can actually experience um, some form of therapy, which is kind of allowing yourself to let go of all your problems and you're using music in the way, in that way. I think that's really what music should be in so many ways, but I don't think it's always about escapism. Sometimes it's also about facing visceral realities and that's the beauty of music. It allows you to, to go to the extremes of, of um, how you perceive everything. And it, and people do use it as that, that kind of escapism as well, you know, taking you close your eyes, headphones on take you to another place i was actually susan kane uh, mentioned in a podcast recently with tim ferris i don't know if you've heard it but she was talking about Eden Rekiel. i'm probably butchering the name but you know uh, her love for music from different cultures and she was talking about the sufi culture and about how music and some songs can can almost make you it, it, it's almost like a religious awakening it can make you go somewhere somewhere else are there any songs or any genres or uh, music from a certain country that uh, that grabs you more than than others that that can kind of take you on a on a on a visceral uh, level uh, no not really i mean it because i find i find a lot of music for i mean you you mentioned idan idan's been to my house and and we we know each other well he's he's a great musician but also you know i've i've kind of worked with you know i mean i, I obviously i've worked with rahat fatih ali khan from the sufi tradition who's the uh, nephew of the great 
uh, late great Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. So the Sufi tradition is one that I also love. So you you just mentioned two things there. But I mean, you know, I'm always exploring, you know, music from Japan, DJ Crush, I love, you know, but again, it depends on the kind of mood. I mean, there's, there are so many, I mean, from, I, I guess I really do love Malian music a lot. I mean, uh, Tamani Diabate, um, you know, Uma Singare, uh, Baseka Koyati, you know, there's some fantastic musicians who've come out of Mali. And I, I just really, uh, you know, love that music as well. But, but you know, Cuban music, Cachaito, um, you know, uh, th- th- there's so much. I mean, I could go on for hours about music I love from virtually every country on the planet. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just, you know, I'm always listening for interesting music, regardless of where it comes from. And, and am I right in thinking that, that Marley had a bit of a punk and, and rock scene there as well? Well, the thing is that um, you've, you, what happened was that there was a, I think there was a kind of situation where a lot, well, music was banned effectively for quite a while. So 50 artists actually, um, you know, complained, well, they protested about this. And um, I think there is a kind of, you know, there are these um, amazing, uh, you know, singers and and bands that have come out of that scene who, who have a, who have a quite a, a powerful sound. I mean, you know, I I think I think that is the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I I couldn't name you a lot of that uh, music off the top of my head. But I have, you know, I've heard a lot of music from Mali that has a real kind of edge to it as a result. It would be remiss of me if I didn't talk about it. But your Desert Island Discs, if anyone listening uh, hasn't heard it, you should immediately stop what you're doing and and go and listen to it but it's it's desert on disc has this way of kind of really amazing way of kind of connecting people you know in in music throughout the years and it's really a, a beautiful way to to kind of listen to what people are uh, enjoying um, at the time but also what w- has influenced them throughout the years <laughs> do you see a lot of people that actually might come up to you now that know you from desert island discs rather than the actual music that you that you create uh no that hasn't happened really <laughs> but it's kind of yeah, um maybe that's the case i, I wouldn't know i mean you know people who's i do i am lucky in that sometimes i I get stopped sometimes in the street or, or people recognize me in a restaurant or a pub or something and they'll they'll come up and they invariably are very, very kind. Um, I've never had a negative uh, comment or anything like that. So, you know, in terms of people who who know the work that I, I write or, or create. So, no, I've, I've had a very lucky run of things, you know, um, so far. I hope that carries on. But um, in contrast to, to my you know, childhood and teenage years where um where I, I experienced a lot of abuse. Um I seem to have I seem to now attract a lot of nice, nice comments and uh, people who seem to be very um very kind to me, uh who do recognize me. So but no one's ever said why they recognize me or where from. Or or maybe they have sometimes, but it I don't think I've ever heard anyone I mean people have said I've heard I heard your Desert Island disc, but they normally are people who know my music or they've heard me before. And did you listen to those island discs before you went on? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I listened to it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I find it really interesting. It's great to actually hear that kind of musical breakdown, and it's interesting to see what people choose uh, to take to to take with them or or to read. You know, it's it, all of that is quite fascinating. You get really good insights, and um, yeah, I, I I think it's uh, it's. I mean, I, I really like uh, Lauren Laverne as well. I think she's great, and she's a really good interviewer. So um, yeah, I, I, I like Desert Island a lot.
Thanks, it's good. Yeah, I think I think I think she's great. Um, music takes up such a large chunk of your time, Nithin. What are your hobbies? Uh, you know, your other hobbies that you have. Do, I mean, you wouldn't have a great deal of time outside of it. But you mentioned, you know, the, the gym and running. But what are your hobbies outside of music? Um, yeah, I mean, I used to do a lot of kickboxing. I'm gradually trying to get back into that, but I'm um, I'm not as young as I used to be, so I'm trying to try and do it slowly. <laughs> but, um, but I, um, yeah, and yoga as well is something I used to do quite a lot of. I mean, these things I'm trying to get more time for at the moment, so I'm I'm kind of changing my lifestyle to to be able to accommodate that a bit more. Uh, and chess, I used to love playing chess when I was younger. I've got got back into that a little bit more recently, um, following uh, the Queen's Gambit on on Netflix. I kind of thought, oh, oh yeah, take... it's on my list. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But um, but yeah, I think uh, apart from that, it's it's reading. It's kind of like you know, looking at. Um, I mean, I, I love theoretical physics of all things. You know, I'm I'm really interested in physics. So so you know, I, I have a I have a kind of you know love of science and I, I read the new scientist every week i'm really always interested in what's going on in the world in terms of scientific advancements but you know having said that you know i i feel that it's very difficult for me to divorce that from thinking about climate change and and what's going on in the world right now so yeah i mean i, I suppose i just have wide interests in things so we're coming to the end of the episode now um, and i just one of the things i did want to talk to you about is an article that I read recently, which is any pandemic or world tragedy that there afterwards, it seems like there's, there's an increase in venues and theaters as people have kind of like somehow been deprived of, of, of human affection. And I, I wonder, do you think that's, that's where we're going after this? Do you think there's that, that people kind of want to get loud and sweaty with each other? I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I do feel that our the way in which we are interacting has changed, and I can't put my finger on it yet. Um, but I think I think there is. I mean, when we were on the tour bus, I know that we were all very happy to be on this tour bus with each other and going to different places um, as a band. I, I I really felt a really good energy um, when I was touring with the band. Although, like I said, it ended up with uh, quite a lot of them getting COVID, sadly. But um, but I. I think it's it's fantastic that people, you know, it, it, there is there is more of a respect for human life and the value of humanity and the value of human life. Um, and I think I think that is a change that I see in people. People are kinder, you know, when you meet them. I think there is um, more a sense of um, people valuing each other's company, um, and I think that will continue on for a while. Nathan Sawney, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And good luck with the upcoming ventures that you have going on and uh, continuing the tour. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you. This podcast was edited by Podlike. We provide expert audio and video production for podcasters and content creators. Find out more at podlike.online.